0: Hey folks, hope your Q3 and Q4 is off to a good start. We just wrapped up Founder 500 in Austin, Texas. Hundreds of bootstrap founders showed up. It was an amazing time. I loved meeting so many of you. This interview today is a recording from that session, which you're gonna love because now we have visuals, we have the founder teaching, and I made every single speaker include their revenue graphs and real artifacts in their presentations. Without further ado, let's jump in. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. Please help me in welcoming Jeff Cotton from Tenfold to the stage.
1: Thank you, sir. Well, good afternoon. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm going to apologize. I'm a little hyped up on coffee. Uh, I just arrived a few hours ago from Brazil. So if I say Bom Dia and start busting out into Portuguese, forgive me for that as well. Uh, it's actually really cool that we lined this up for me to go right after Kevin because he's actually just presented everything you're going to hear about Tenfold. Tenfold was a raving success, which I'll talk about in a second. But when I joined the company, I was not a founder, so I'm not like a lot of you in the room. Uh, the company had just done exactly everything that Kevin just told you not to do. And so let me try to break that down so you can see a real world example. I'm going to cover three things. First, deadly burn. And I could not agree with Kevin Moore. It is not about cash. It is about networking capital. That is so true. Uh, Number two, growth. You've got to understand your demand gen model. I think demand gen models are everything. And uh, then I'm going to talk a little bit about the exit and where we sort of took Tenfold to. So Deadly Burn. This um, will tell you a little bit about where Tenfold was before I joined my little picture up there is when I started to influence the board. So I actually did not join until January 1st, 2019, um, but I started working with the board in 2018 when the company knew they were in really big trouble. Uh, we were averaging about $2 million a month in burn. We had raised about $14 million a year the prior two years. And by the time I joined, we had 2.2 million in the bank with $2 million average burn. And uh, I had about two million dollars in debts, receivables, and money that I owed development firms and all kinds of legal organizations. It, it was completely crazy.
0: Jeff, what, Jeff, yeah. I'm on your left, real quick. Yeah, just name some of the investors that were on your board and how much
1: was raised. <laughs> is, that, is that okay? You're not. Throwing oh yeah, it the bus. Uh, yeah. I, I'm. I'm going to cover that. Great investors, by the way. Um, I think part of the story here is when you have the right team that understands how to run a business and, and what to focus on because focus is key. Uh, the investors can really give you a boost, but if not, it can be problematic. So Andreessen Horowitz read, uh, led uh, in Tedfold series series A. Uh, the company had completed a B just before I joined, which was led by Next Coast Ventures here in Austin. Uh, and those are the two primary uh, investors. The company took on a lot of seed capital uh, prior to the A by a lot of folks all throughout Texas. Uh, the company was actually headquartered and based here in Austin. And actually, let me cover quickly. I'm not going to cover a lot about the business because it doesn't really matter a whole lot. But we were in the, the CX space, the customer service and customer experience space. So we were an integration platform that tied phone systems and CRMs together for big inbound contact centers. So think someone like HP, right? Print, print printers, laptops, et cetera. You call in. You've got a problem with your laptop we would arm an agent with automatic information, auto displayed to them about you potentially calling in and even potential problems that the agent sees about a device that you may own from Dell or HP or whoever. And those were the types of customers that we have. Um, so this is sort of the, the setup here in terms of where I stepped in and a company that had really gone off the rails. It had a phenomenal idea. It had a great product. It had grown to about 5 million in revenue. And then it started to plateau and shrink for a number of reasons, which I'll uh, cover here in a second. Um, so first of all, I've already sort of covered some of these numbers here. One of the things that I will highlight is a cautionary tale is focus. Um, so when you have some of these big VCs, uh, into your company, do I have any venture capitalists here, by the way? Okay. All right. A couple love VCs, right? I- I'm an LP in a lot of funds myself and, and VCs are the lifeblood of innovation, right? We have to have venture capital, but You have to make sure you really are uh, uh, cautious, specific in what you're looking for out of a VC when you go after one. And I think before you really take on venture capital, you really have to know your business model. Your business model has to be repeatable. And when I say business model, I'm primarily talking about demand generation. Can you reliably, repeatably generate demand and you're truly getting on a growth curve? That to me is a marker to go take on. Uh, venture capital once again, very much in line with the things that Kevin just outlined in terms of do you use debt, do you use cash do you use equity cash, etc um, so 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 that was one huge issue was focus. The company decided, even though we were in the CX space with a big VC behind them with lots of ideas hey crypto 's hot now let 's go spin up a team that 's going to go try to figure out how we can help customer service operations take on uh, cryptocurrency. interesting idea. But there are many other things that are more adjacent to the core product uh, that we could have invested in, chose not to, not to mention the sales motion is very different for that type of a product. Uh, The company just started to sprawl very quickly and did not stay focused on its core product before it had reliable demand. Once again, getting to 5 million in revenue in ARR is great, uh, but you have to have a sustainable path well beyond 5 before I think you start to expand uh, a product Sales expense. Once again, the company did not have a reliable demand generation model, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, and had grown sales expense wildly. So they had basically gone and hired um, sales executives all over the United States, primarily North America focused, uh, but had a sales team of about 26 quota bearing reps and were only generating about $500,000 in ARR sales bookings a quarter that's going to get you killed very quickly and was a big part of what was burning cash without generating a lot of revenue and cash returns. Uh, And then no successful KPI. So uh, I'm mostly a big enterprise guy. This was actually my first startup, which I very purposely wanted to go do to spend time with venture capital, put my arms around a small uh, company organization. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, But I am a maniacal operator. It is all about What do your demand gen metrics say success based models to pour, uh, more investment in behind repeatable, uh, models, making sure that product is delivering and, and you can, you know, build revenue behind the product delivery, uh, et cetera. So a part of what we had to do with the burn, like you saw was go eliminate expense. How many of you have had to do any kind of a layoff here so far? Anybody had to eliminate people? A few hands. So for those of you who haven't, which is most of you in the room, don't, don't get yourself into this situation. But if you have to, um, it's doable and and you can survive it. Uh, I believe in the old, uh, Peter Drucker, uh, uh, quote that, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. To me, it is all about the people. Ultimately, you can have the best strategy. You can have great product and you're going to struggle if you don't have a great team, but if you do have to lay people off, look, first of all, you as a founder, as a CEO, have to own the message. You've got to stand up in front of the team and say, look, we have struggled. We have, we have failed in, in whatever way or area in which you failed. You've got to own that message. And you also have to treat people really great as you're exiting them. One of the things that we did is we made sure everyone kept their equity so that they felt like they still had a piece of something, that they still had a share for the work that they had done to get us to where we were. And actually many of those people actually were paid in our exit ultimately, uh, which which was really critical. The other thing I would tell you is unfortunately the company did have to do a reduction before I joined and I had to do one more. But rest assured, when I did mine, it was the last one. Uh, When you do these, you've got to go as deep as you possibly can. So the company was about 200 people. Before I joined, I took it to 29. And that was at 5 million in revenue. We went down to 29 people. And it was probably 80% of the 29 that were left were developers. So the point about I was the CFO, I was the chief legal person, I was the marketing, pr- I was everything pretty much except for product and engineering to get the product where we ultimately needed it so that we could grow it again. The other thing is with a company that had raised $28 million, got to $5 million in ARR, and had basically gone flat, we were not in a position to go rebuild a significant demand engine. And once again, you've heard me talk about this word a lot. So one of the other things I felt was really critical is we needed an extremely efficient uh, CAC model, an extremely efficient revenue generation model. And so we pivoted the go to market 100% towards a channel partner based model, which in our business made a lot of sense because we had a lot of natural partnerships because we were an integration platform built into our ecosystem. All right. Um, this was another metric that I personally started to obsess about, which is burn as a percentage of revenue. Um, as we have pointed out here, the sort of dashed line uh, is where you're at negative 100%, meaning you are, you are burning your entire revenue and then your entire revenue again. So 2X your revenue is how much you're burning a month. And as you can see, once again, before I joined, we were uh, well above that and we ultimately sort of got it into this range where we were sort of break even, right? Most startups are burning cash, right? That's not a bad thing necessarily, but it is if you don't have all of these reliable demand generation engines, et cetera, so that you're getting your revenue ultimately where you want to go. So this to me was a really key metric to understand and obsess about and get it as close to zero as you can, even though you're a startup. And what helped us turn that around was getting deal sizes up. So as we started to look at how am I going to get more demand in, I also had to look at the types of deals that I was doing and what was going to help us be as efficient as possible in that demand generation model. We were primarily SMB focused when I joined, which is interesting because our platform, the product itself was really not an SMB product. We were integrating a lot of legacy technology with new modern technology like, say, Avaya phone systems with Salesforce CRM, well, most of you today are probably not going to go to Avaya or Cisco and buy a Cisco phone system for your employees or for your inside sales teams or whatever else you have, right? You're going to go buy some, you know, modern VoIP-based system and you're going to have a lot of the built-in features that our product was ultimately buying. So we kind of misdiagnosed the market. And as we got really maniacally focused on large enterprise, of course, large enterprise is going to have much larger deal sizes. So we had to really understand the market. um, And that was really key in terms of getting uh, a more efficient demand generation model. So as you can see here, a multi-year view of how we ultimately increased deal size, which was a huge part of our turnaround. And the sort of shift there also was as we were thinking about the types of salespeople we needed, we had to really kind of remake the sales team. Um, so first and foremost we were maniacal at aligning investment with revenue i had a quarterly cadence and i'll show you a scorecard here in just a few minutes that we completely ran the business on monthly i knew exactly where networking capital was and cash balances and what pipelines and last quarter numbers were with cash likely coming in over the next 30 60 days and we aligned the company 100 percent. i was making decisions on do i hold back three hires this week or this month Uh, based on how we're performing today. We would review cash literally every single week in my weekly staff meeting. We um, also uh, cut down vendor spend significantly. I was shocked, and I'm sure some of you have seen some of this. You may even have the desire to do it yourself, but as a startup, I think everyone wants to use all the coolest, newest, latest, whatever. And when I looked at our vendor stack, we had three of everything. You know someone went out and bought calendly and they love it and then all of a sudden everybody in the company's got calendly and we're spending you know ten thousand dollars a year on calendly someone went out and bought yesware and all of a sudden oh my god that's so cool i can see who read the emails i'm, I'm gonna go get that right and then we had everybody with Yesware, and my vendor stack was ungodly i mean we were spending millions and millions a year on stuff that we didn't need when a spreadsheet would frankly do the job um, so we really, really cleaned up the, the, the vendor spin. And I would really caution anybody about all this free signup stuff that you feel like you can take advantage of. Because it really does kill you in the end. Sales reps, performance. We uh, would not let sales reps go past six months if they couldn't uh, build pipeline and perform. And this one's really hard because it's always hard to exit people. But this is kind of general sales culture. And I think in a startup, you really have to be all over this you can't let people go a year i now run a 350 million fifty million dollar company and we let people go well over a year and that's not good practice but in a startup you got to do it i think every six months and if someone's not able to perform build pipeline and show that they can produce uh, you got to get new people in uh the last thing then that i want to just spend one more second on because i've said a lot about it but know the, d- the demand generation model i've run two different types of business in my life i've run a highly website-driven, pay-per-click uh, model. And in those models, you obsess every single day on your metrics, what your spend was yesterday, how many leads you got in, are conversion rates changing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If that's your type of business, you need to be on it and you need to manage it every day. If you're more an enterprise or B2B type uh, uh, software business, it's much more about pipeline, pipeline quality, having you know the proper Uh, checks in on where a deal actually is in its life cycle and understanding that deal cycle. But that to me is what you have to really own to build a reliable demand gen model. And I would not be spending crazy burn uh, and increasing burn anything near even 50% of revenue uh, if you do not have a reliable demand gen model. All right, let me shift and talk growth section here for just one second. I've already hit this one. just keep moving. Um, so here was the scorecard that we obsessed about. We kept this as simple as we could. We always had four metrics, and this was for the whole company. And we set those metrics about this time, sort of maybe beginning of Q4 every year for the following year, and we did not change them. We set those goals. One of the challenges I had was everyone felt like the company would change every 30, 60 days, and it was always something new. We gotta change this over here, add this over here. You need to be flexible. This is one of the things I loved about startup land versus big enterprise, which I'm typically uh, spending my, my, my time in, that you can change on a dime, but your top level strategic objectives really need to be set. And so we always had a customer goal uh, that was all about customer satisfaction, loyalty, You know, support metrics. We had a number of, of metrics that we would look at under that underlying goal. Uh, we always had a product goal. One of the other struggles I had was different teams fighting inside of the, in, of the company. And once again, small company, right? We got down to 29, we grew to 100 before we exited. But even those small groups were fighting over, well, you know, I just sold this deal and product didn't deliver on time. Or product would say, hey, we didn't know that was coming. You know, we didn't incorporate it in the proper timeline uh, of the roadmap. So we published our roadmap and we would talk about it every single month. And we would highlight things in weekly fireside chats on how we were progressing on key roadmap items so that sales always knew what was coming when. Our channel management team knew what they could talk about with partners. And then also from a revenue perspective, we were always sort of keeping up with, okay, when do I think I'm probably going to be able to generate new revenue streams based on new product? Um, Channel was very, us, what I would call number three for most of you here is demand gen model make sure that you are highlighting to the whole company how your demand gen model is 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 progressing because this is going to be a key lever for are you going to keep hiring are you not going to keep hiring and I would use this one and I want to talk when I would talk to the company at times to say hey gang we just had a really bad 45 days in demand gen we're going to slow some things down until that demand gen model uh, picks back up And then of course financial targets um we were always keeping the company fully abreast on where we were with networking capital cash in the bank uh revenue uh etc okay so let's switch gears here and talk about the exit so one of the things that I, i think a lot of startup founders especially but even as you start to take on vc and you spend time with the board uh is you know, how, how should I think about exit? How, how, how often should I obsess about what is my exit path? Who should I talk to about exit? Does everyone in the company need to understand what's going on and how we're thinking about exit? One of the first things I'll tell you, and you've all heard, you've all heard it, I'm sure, which is that companies are bought, not sold. And I would uh, sort of spend time with my top leadership team obsessing all over that mantra and that, look, we have to build great product that customers love and continue to buy and expand, and the rest of that stuff will take care of itself. Because that's what I needed the internal team focused on. But of course, as a founder, as a CEO, and for uh, those of you that have a board, you obviously do have to think about this and manage it. So what I did is I created a little council that included the two founders of the business that were still there when I joined, because I wanted them to feel like they still had a voice and ownership in that. With my board and a couple of other advisors, where we would quarterly have a a, a strategic planning session to sort of look at the metrics of the business, what we thought valuation really, really was, not just what some math model is telling you, what's going on in the market, who are the potential exits, uh, et cetera, so that we were just constantly keeping an eye on that. Now, in our business, maybe very different than some of what you all are dealing with, but because we went with a primarily channel distribution model we had a lot of natural exits built into our business. And in fact, one of the decisions we made was to OEM our software and white label it so that others could sell it as their own. And clearly in that type of a, of a model, those are going to be potential acquirers for you down the road. I had made the call that because we were effectively a tool, I didn't believe that this really had a public IPO path. Uh, you know, you've got to get to 100 million with rule of 40 at 100 million for you to really be on you know, a potential IPO path. And I didn't see that with this company. And it was so valuable. I knew that I could get 20X revenue multiples uh, if we aligned with the right types of partners. So we chose to use that partner strategy to align ourselves with people that probably would end up buying. But once again, I'm maniacally focused on execution, acquiring customers, making those partners happy, showing that we were delivering high quality product that they needed, And ultimately, what happened is one of those OEM partners said, hey, we really would like to have a conversation because we believe we need to own this technology. And we said, that's great. We've actually just taken on debt. Funny enough, uh, I did not want to take on any more dilution. So we had gone and done a a debt round to basically just continue to fund uh, some working capital and that we were going for it we were not for sale but you know look we have a pragmatic board we absolutely would listen to you know an offer if someone wanted to uh surface with that so ultimately live person did um as a result of these oem agreements we did offer uh notification rights we did not give rofers you obviously never want to give a right of first refusal Uh, And we had everyone demand it and ask for it. And in every case, except for one, actually, we we did not successfully get one OEM uh, agreement done because of uh, not granting a ROFER. Uh, But we did grant notification rights, which, you know, is only to your benefit. Because in the end, what happened is once you had an offer on the table, we served those notification rights, which then triggered a competitive process. And so that worked very much uh, in our favor. So live person service was the first offer. It triggered that um, uh, competitive process. And I believe that we would not have gotten there if we had not really obsessed about rule of 40. So you can see uh, prior to uh, 2020, let's call it, we we weren't even in the realm of possibility to be acquired. And we did have a, a... mega multi-billion dollar company who all who was an investor actually, a relatively small investor, but they always wanted to acquire the company, but they never did until we could actually get the business growing and get burn rate to a responsible level. And finally once we had literally six quarters of sort of being above zero and then getting into that sort of 40 and above sort of level, finally they were interested. Uh, But you can be the best product. You know, you you can be acquiring customers. You can be making customers happy. But if financially you're not delivering and performing, it's going to be really hard to ultimately get an exit. And so if we hadn't put this up, we would not have gotten uh, there. So ultimately, LivePerson is who acquired uh, Tenfold. LivePerson was primarily in the chat uh, business. So when you go onto a website today and the little bot pops up, um, probably six out of ten of those that you see is going to be LivePerson. They are the dominant market leader. And that space, and they wanted to get more into this um, sort of voice and CRM uh, I- integration space, which is ultimately why they chose to acquire Tenfold. So, um, you know, I've covered most of this. Um, we had taken on about thirty-five million, just shy of that, uh, in total capital. We returned um, more than two X what we raised, and we, uh, because we'd done a number of rounds, including a down round. Uh, Our investors got anywhere between two and five X, depending on how much they invested in every round. Of course, as you can imagine, the latter investors got the five X. They were over the moon uh, excited. I would tell you on a down round, a couple things. First of all, this was painful. No one wanted to do it but you got to do it if, if you're in this type of a situation. And a couple things that I would think about, I was lucky to have supportive investors, but I was also demanding of those investors that number one, you all have been here along the way, you've helped this business get to the spot it's in. And number two, We've got to do the right thing by the employees. If we do not get a team that is re-incented, re-signed up because they've just taken a whole lot of dilution as well on this down round, and they don't necessarily have the opportunity unless we re-up them as a part of this down round, they don't have the ability to participate in now future upside. So I asked our board, uh, maybe more like demanded our board, and they supported a complete recap of the company. Uh, So that would be something that if you're facing that type of a situation, I would absolutely make sure that you're thinking about how can you recap uh, all of your employees, which are really important, so that everyone can win. And look, we we also uh, were successful at getting 50% of the company back in the hands of the employees. You can imagine raising three rounds of capital now uh, with the types of valuations that we had. We had taken a lot of dilution on and we were probably down around 15% was what employees were holding uh, prior to that down round. Um, One last thing. Um, And probably the way to think about this more for you all is bringing on new leaders into your organizations. Um, One of the things that I did that I think ultimately made this successful is I was not a founder and I knew it was critical to really prop the founders of the company up and keep them highly visible, keep giving them accolades and praise for getting the company to where it was and being central figures. Um, Anytime we had a strategic uh, a topic or a, a long-range planning topic, product, vision, roadmap, those kinds of things. I let those guys deliver the message, present to the company, et cetera, because I needed them. It was critical to have them on board. But but, but really emphasizing that it was really their company uh, really mattered. But I would be thinking about how can you get experienced operators? I, I will tell you now as a board member and an investor in a lot of early stage companies, this is one of the things I see most organizations struggle with the most. You need help operationally. You need someone who's going to build structure and operating rigor tricks that help you build repeatability. Repeatability is the thing that I see over and over that people struggle with. And and by the way, acquirers or PE firms or whoever's a potential exit for your business is going to, that's the primary thing they're looking for is repeatability. And you're going to need that type of operational rigor to help you get there. So I'd be thinking about that, but then making sure that it's someone that understands what their role is and fits within that sort of founder mentality, because it's very, it's very possible to do that. And you just have to make sure that the old and the new all feel like they have a seat at the table. All right. That is the tenfold story. Thank you.